Hey, welcome to the Persons with Lived Experience podcast, inspiring stories for unprecedented times with Dixie and Zona. My earliest memories upon being surrounded by death was that I got introduced to like really graphic pornography, kindergarten and first grade. Wow. That's great. And so, and so like with anything, like anyone that has ever battled any kind of addiction, whatever it is that's bringing us to a place for our dopamine to be triggered on things, we find ourselves seeking it out. And like my dad has found pictures of me where literally half of my body was yellow and the other half of my body was purple. Hmm. Like my body was shutting down. Bring Freedom's live anti-trafficking inspiration event is coming up on November 18th and 19th. Sign up for the all for one challenge today. You don't want to miss this. This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take precautions for yourself. Thank you. I'm Zona, a writer, speaker, a person with lived experience of human trafficking and homelessness, of course, a tiny house enthusiast and a serial foodie. And I'm Dixie. I'm all about joy, justice, and fair trade fashion. I'm an anti-trafficking advocate, mom of many, and passionate worshiper. Today on the podcast, we have Michael Turley. He is a husband, father, Jesus lover, and dreamer. He is a son of Yahweh that's been set free from years of addiction. Many roads have led him to the place we meet today. Welcome, Michael. Hey, good afternoon, ladies. Hey, we're so glad you're here. Yeah. It's a good day. It's a good day to have a good day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so we are excited to hear your story. If you want to kind of let us get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what, for everybody that, that gets to hear this, like, you know, what's amazing is this is our second attempt at this. So we're just going to be real about it. But I trust that there are things that the Lord once spoken about today that maybe we didn't try to speak about the first time. Right. Uh, As for me, oh my goodness. Every single time I tell my story, it's like, well, Lord, what's important to say and what's not, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe today is going to be the day that it's not going to be this long laundry list of living in darkness, but just the fact that, I have learned over the years that most people have trauma, whether they choose to speak on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of us have these adverse childhood experiences that really shape and navigate our early childhood into our teens. And then all of a sudden, depending on how we're raised, we are just thrust out into this world as if we are expected to know how to do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for me, my past, if I was, if I was going to give somebody like the little cliff notes version is, uh, I was a child that was raised in poverty. Even if I didn't know that I was always living in poverty, mm-hmm. uh, I was fed, I was loved. I always had clothes. It might not have been what I wanted to wear, but it was always clean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but my earliest childhood memories on on like what has led me to be here speaking with you two ladies and whomever hears this today is that my earliest memories in life were death. So many people around me were dying so often. Like I lived growing up and being raised in a nursing home and a funeral home. Hmm. And so I think being surrounded by that level of trauma partnered with the fact that I was the right, I was, all the way as a sophomore, I was five foot and I was 80 pounds. So you can imagine me right. in elementary school and middle school. Like I was that little kid mm-hmm. that that was probably fed junk food most of my life because my mom and dad, who were always working and trying to put something in my belly, 
gave me a little bit of garbage and sent me out the door. Well, by the time I got to school, I was probably crashing and starting to go through detox of all these artificial sweeteners and preservatives. Right. And so I was always kind of wild as a child, not necessarily mean, but it was hard for me to sit still. And I believe that I was always like, there was something more that I wanted from my family and maybe the people around me, because I felt like I was the small kid that wasn't seen and wasn't heard. And when I was being seen and heard, it was because I had been acting out in such a way that it brought those around me to a place to have to bring correction into my life. Mm-hmm. Well, my earliest memories upon being surrounded by death was that I got introduced to like really graphic pornography, kindergarten and first grade. Wow. That's great. And so, and so like with anything, like anyone that has ever battled any kind of addiction, whatever it is that's bringing us to a place for our dopamine to be triggered on things, we find ourselves seeking it out. So it got really, how would I say this? I became so woven into like graphic sex at an early age that I was always doing something to get my hands on it. Mm-hmm. Sneaking out to the woods where like, like the guys I was raised around, like I was raised around a bunch of my friends, dads, they were hunters, they were gunsmiths. And they were the kind of guys that would say it was acceptable for young men to have pornography is like their way of teaching them about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so from an early age, I think I really, I think for years I kind of, I hid this away that maybe, maybe I suffered from, or I was buying into the, the thought of like a homosexual attraction as an early age but really it was just that I was a young kid that was sexual right and so it just so happened to be that where I got to uh, display or experience sexuality was around other males because that's who I was spending my time with mm-hmm. and really they were young guys that were diving into this as well and I think for mm-hmm. years not being able to talk about it or just the fact that I got really good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. it. It just kept something like in the dark, it was festering. And, you know, I do believe that there was a level of like equal amounts of attraction and shame that brought me to a place to like always be wild and out. Like at an early age, I become the kind of guy that was, it didn't matter what it was for attention, no matter how drastic I was that kid. Mm-hmm. Let's set a fire here. Let's steal this here. Let's break into that building. Let's jump out of the classroom and run home. Like I was that kid. It was like always fighting for attention. So at an early age in life, becoming a liar was just something that I was raised in because I was so like seeking out sexuality had become such a part of my life. Like, you know, like, I think fast forward years down the road, it was probably like a form of perversion, but it was just like, well, I'm excited about this. I think I know something about this. Who can I talk to this about? Well, my friends were the only people around me. So then it became like, where could I go and get my hands on pornography? How could I hide it? And then when the time comes, who can I share it with? Right. So there was, I think this always this fear of I'm about to get caught. So anytime no matter what your addiction is, the fear of getting caught already has you in this place to like play out this scenario. All right, I'm getting my story together. How can I be prepared for when my mama catches me and says, what have you been up to? Uh, 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 you know, I'm stammering around my words, trying to make something sound real enough to where I'm not going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. But once I got really good at lying, stealing is like a best friend of lying. Like they're just best, you know, stealing and lying are the same thing. It's just like a different expression of it. You're still doing the same thing. And Mm -hmm. so at an early age, I would definitely 100% say I was a kleptomaniac. Like I would find myself stealing things, never having a reason. I would just walk into some place and it's like, all right, what am I leaving here with today? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, And maybe some of that comes from a place to where I would see the 
you know, my friends, parents being able to afford what they wanted. Uh, maybe not. Maybe that's just an excuse I chose to come into agreement with was like, well, if my parents can't afford it, then I'm going to have it anyways. But no matter what I stole, I'd still have to hide it because my parents, you know, they knew what they could afford and what they couldn't. So if I came home with something, you know, I became that kid that was always finding things at school when really I was mm-hmm. just stealing things from everybody that I could get my hands on. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I definitely think that in my childhood, I, I became known as that kid that was always wilding out, stealing things, couldn't be trustworthy. But all along the way, like I could see God's hand on my life because I was still surrounded by people that chose to just uh, really sacrificially love me. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't go to church, but my dad would drop me off at church every Sunday and I was raised in a Southern Baptist church that was surrounded. Like I was, you know, I had 20, 30 grandmothers and some really awesome like hog farmers, you know, like these mm-hmm. country men around mm-hmm. me that loved me. But I can remember my pastor always turning purple in the face every Sunday. So I was loved really well in the congregation, but I definitely was never raised in an environment where I knew who the Holy Spirit was. Like I was never discipled right. into, into who Holy Spirit was, the freedom of Holy Spirit, repentance and walking in freedom. Mm-hmm. So there was this, you know, most of my life, I feel like I, I was close enough to God to maybe feel like I was going to hell. Like I know somewhere deep down inside this God loves me, but I am completely ashamed of all these things that I'm doing in my life. Mm-hmm. So without going into like, well, no, we'll go into it. So like something that began to shape me as a young man was like, I was that kid that it was easy to be picked on. Mm-hmm. Like I was an easy target. So most of my life, whether my brother at times would leave me bloody at the bus stop. So I'd go to school bloody. Uh, and then whoever the popular kid was in class, like usually when like the jock or the pretty boys going for the girl, then oftentimes as cliche as it is. And you would see it in movies. Like it's easy to go for the easy target to make you look cooler in the status quo. Right. Well, that was me. You know, for years I had guys that every time I got on the school bus, they would pin me down in the seat where the, you know, where the fender well is, where the wheel is at on the bus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was the spot that these guys would just push me down and they would beat me until the bus driver would finally get them to stop. Wow. So I think early on, so you partner the fact that I was living in secrecy through sexuality and I was crying out for attention but then there was just years of like daily humiliation. Mm-hmm. And I think like a coping mechanism for myself was that I just became that guy that always pretended to be happy and maybe not always pretended to be happy. Like I really do believe that, that Yahweh had given me a supernatural ability to rebound emotionally quickly. Yeah. That even on my worst days, no matter how tragic things might have been that day, I don't believe I ever succumbed to like this overall sense of dread and hopelessness. Right. Was I always worried about getting caught? Yeah, I was always terrified. There was always these moments that lasted most of my life that every time somebody knocked at the door, I thought I was getting exposed. Hmm, Right. I do believe that there was this underlying level of fear that was beginning to shape my personality and it was a bringing me to this place to live in a constant state of fight or flight right all while being able to smile at any moment at any moment for years somebody could say how you doing today michael and i could instantly like just snap right into being that guy that was having a great day no matter how drastic my day had been right yeah. Uh, fast forward to high school, uh, I became the guy that I was an easy target on the wrestling team. I loved to wrestle, but there was always these these guys that during practice, like like after practice, we had a coach that would force every not not force, but it was a requirement that if you wrestled that day, you were going to take a shower afterwards before you went home. Yeah. 
So I became an easy target. And there was just multiple times in high school that these men would hold me down in the shower and urinate on me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they would cackle. And then, you know, I would try to laugh it off or act like it didn't bother me because if, if I would have like broken down in tears, then it would have just went further. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that level of, you know, it, it shows, it shows you what they're, you know, here I am almost 45 years old. So now it shows me like, what were their aces? What were their adverse childhood experiences that brought them to this place that for whatever they were coping with inside their treatment towards me now shows me the level of possible abuse that they were dealing with in their life. And their expression of dealing with it was to mistreat me. Yeah. You know, you know, in 45 years, I've never processed that thought until just now. Huh. Yeah. Wow. That that what they were dealing with brought them to this level of, you know, oftentimes we see it in today's society, like people become intoxicated by the comment sections. True. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody can post something about your blog and depending on how you respond, they've already got this response. It's like locked and loaded. You know, it's like they just took another shot of liquor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so they, you know, as people can get intoxicated in the comment sections, I was surrounded by these guys that were being uh, intoxicated by their abuse of me and maybe other people that were in their life as well. Here's, here's me as a kid, uh, always living in secrecy, always hiding, always having this fear of being exposed. And it just brought me to this place out of high school that I felt like I had nothing in my town. Uh, I didn't have a car. I couldn't be trusted. I was starting to burn bridges in my life. So even, so like I needed an escape route. So my escape route uh, after my first year of college was like, you know, if I can't do anything else in this town, I'm just going to join the army and get away. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had never dealt with anything in my life. I, uh, I never knew counseling was a thing. I had never openly talked about anything that I had done in my life. I just started to become this chameleon. Mm-hmm. Like, right. no, matter, no matter what people group I was with, I was going to do something quickly to fit in with them. Mm-hmm. And so that had become such a tactic of mine growing up, or maybe not a tactic, maybe just a coping mechanism for fear and, you know, always kind of running from shame mm-hmm. that, you know, I ran right into the military and that 1996 became this place where that would begin like the next 21 years of really spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. Join the military, uh, went to Bosnia, Slovenia, Hungary, Germany, and began to experience things in Bosnia that I didn't, I never considered myself of somebody that came back from the military with PTSD, but years later, I just realized that the levels of death that I did encounter, no matter how close they were to me or how I processed them, did affect me. Of course. They were just, it was just dormant. You know, it was just like, well, here I am, because I had spent so much of my life just maintaining adversity on a daily basis that even encountering death the way that I did in Bosnia was was no different than being abused in high school. Mm-hmm. It's just that from 1996, the moment I joined the military, every people group that I went to, I got into this routine of fabricating my backstory. Interesting. There, you know, yeah. it became like partial truths. Mm-hmm. You know, here's 80% truth. But when I met this person and I wanted to feel cooler, I wanted to have like a, you know, a better reputation or just a cooler history in my life than I could fabricate just enough to gain favor in this subculture. And then, and then once I found that maybe that story worked in this people group and that story worked in this people group, I realized, wow, I, I kind of have power in this. Like I kind of got a, maybe I got the upper hand socially in this so I began to portray that okay so you know Mm -hmm. no matter if I was most of well I mean every social class in the military became my friends the Latinos Mm -hmm. 
the African Americans, my hardcore group of like ride or die female friends because I was like the safe guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then early on in the military, I really got thrust into like the underground rave scene. Right. Huh. And so once I got into that scene in Europe and then fast forward years later in like Louisiana and Texas, I became that guy that was always, I became addicted to psychedelics and like uh, rave drugs really quick, ecstasy, mescaline, all these psychedelics and stuff that I I would begin to like cultivate a new persona. Mm -hmm. Like, like with this group of people, I had this nickname and with this nickname, I had this backstory. And so I could pretend to be somebody different with every group of persons that I was with. Uh, all along, I still had people that were close enough to me to like, kind of like call bullshit. Mm-hmm. They're like, we, we, we've gotten to know the real you. So why are you acting like this in this level? And I'm really grateful that a couple of those people are still in my life. And those relationships have really been redeemed. And it's just been through a really, it's just by the love of Yahweh. Right. But the, really the whole true. time I was in the military, I was creating friends uh, I was making these new pockets of family. You know, it was like such a deep desperation for family. And we see that whether it's in the hardcore music scene, metalheads, hip hop, you know, maybe it's street culture with cars. Like, you know, we're the kind of people that unless you have solid family in your life, which I had a mother and a father that loved me, but they never verbally taught me anything. Hmm. They worked, they came home, they fed me, they watched TV, we went to bed, we would always talk whenever I got in trouble, but like like being discipled was not something my parents did. Passing down family stories was not something my family did. And you know, I've got to look back on it now and realize that I was always acting out and living in secrecy in such a way that my parents were probably always on guard. My parents were in this place of like their own like fight or flight or sense of failure or what can I do now? You know, so I know mm-hmm. that I know that my parents based off of how their parents raised them, that they did the best that they could. Sure. But it still didn't, you know, it still didn't equip me in such a way or give me this strong sense of family. So when I thrust myself out into the real world, trying to create family and all these other cultures, I was always trying to latch on something, but I didn't know how to do it. Like, with honesty. I didn't yeah. know how to be real with people because here I am 20 years later, like I had always been living in this constant state of fight or flight, always on edge. So I was doing whatever I could to just like fit in. And that became comfortable. That became like my normal. So it's like, all right, I'm going here. Who am I going to pretend to be today? Or how can I leverage this pocket of people to where I can fit in quicker. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and as I listen to, like I listen to your introduction ladies on like what it is that you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. There are so many people that have found themselves living on the street that that is still like a coping mechanism and like a way to fit in even when they have been faced with living on the street. Yeah. You know, so in the military, I quickly became addicted to anything I could get my hands on, went to prison in Oklahoma, got out of prison, came back home to Southwest Virginia. And at that point in time in my life, I didn't have a big access to psychedelics anymore. So the culture of my hometown was pain pills, Xanax, alcohol, whatever. So for me, I spent the next 21 years addicted picks up it didn't matter what it was whatever I could get my hands on was what I was going to ingest like I was constantly running from responsibility even though I was always working I was always running from the fear of being exposed even though I never knew how to step out of it yeah so every group of people that I went to sooner or later I burnt a bridge so yeah you know coming out of prison uh did I ever sleep in my car but no, but my goodness, if I wasn't going from house to house, couch to couch, uh, with the desperation of having some place to live without ever going back home to my parents' house. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like I always had this, uh, how would I do it? Like I would live in people's houses. They would let me sleep in the nastiest of places and sometimes the nicest places. Sometimes I had favor to sleep in someplace nice. But but being broke, not having a vehicle, being dependent on somebody else was like I would lay in people's houses and pretend to be asleep until they left just so I could wake up and eat whatever food they weren't going to miss. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, get up and go to the mall and go to whatever places I could get some free packs of crackers and free packs of mustard just mm. to put a little something into my belly that day. Yeah, and, Chick-fil-A is really great for that, right? Man. <laughs> Chick-fil-A and Petro's. Like, that yeah. was my place yep. to, get, to get crackers and something yeah. free to drink. Mm-hmm. True. And, uh, you know, like I fast forward now, my wife and I, we have a nonprofit called the Acorn House, and we're working with people coming out of incarceration and to just break uh, toxic thinking. Like what are the cycles that keep us from just processing and moving forward in a safe place? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I never had that. You know, I was I was married for eight years in a relationship where I was never completely honest and I was I was an addict and a thief there. So like every family member's house that I went to, I was constantly stealing pain pills out of their house. I was a cable and internet guy for years. And every house, my addiction had gone to a place where every house I went into, I robbed. Mm-hmm. I'd put yeah. the smile on. I'd be the super sweet and generous cable guy. But every time I asked to use their bathroom, I was definitely going in to find pills. Mm-hmm. You know, and... And at this point in time in my life, I had gotten into a place of, of psychedelics. I'd gotten right back into a place of uh, distributing narcotics. Like, you know, always trying to have a side hustle so that I could continue paying for my addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I really, you know, I was in a marriage. And I really think, like, to really process it honestly, I probably got married so that I didn't have to face the fact of possibly having to go back home and live with my parents again. Mm-hmm. Ah, see. And, and you know, I had gotten into a place where it was like, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to walk away from this. So mm-hmm. let's just, maybe it was a, like a lifetime of a fear of confrontation. Mm-hmm. So I would stay in something much longer uh, just because I had a fear of confrontation or happened to be real or maybe just the fear of being exposed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now, in all of this time and all of this drug use, was there a point in time that you ever overdosed? Oh, gosh, no. And that's that's the crazy thing is I've talked to so many people. And, like, my dad has found pictures of me where literally half of my body was yellow and the other half of my body was purple. Hmm. Like, my body was shutting down. This podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of the supporters of bringfreedom.org. Through your support, through our Venmo at Bring Freedom, we are able to support the persons with lived experience who are brave enough to share their stories here and avoid re-traumatization by them having to give away their story or their services for free while still maintaining these types of trainings as well as the all for one challenge that we have coming up on November 18th and 19th at no cost to you in order to completely end human trafficking in your community. If you would like to be one of the supporters of bringfreedom.org, you can visit our website or you can make a tax-deductible donation to our Venmo at bringfreedom. Thank you. And as folks were overdosing around me, I would continue to do more. Like, it had gotten to a place where my average was, like, eating 25 hits of LSD on the weekend, hmm. along, oh. with, along with ecstasy and whatever, you know, by the time the after party came, whatever people were popping out, man, I'm getting in there, too. Wow. So, it had just, 
like, and that's, that's a testimony of God's grace on my life is that my, my doctor said, man, you should have palsy. You should have had strokes years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I had gotten to this place where it was mass consumption every time. Right. Every time. So as people around me were overdosing, I still wouldn't. Wow. Uh, I can, you know, I, I can remember times where I definitely know that at multiple raves, like I would black out and I was probably left, like, I don't know how long I was having seizures, mm-hmm. but I would come out of it and continue to just, you know, I never saved drugs. <laughs> I was the guy yeah. that like, if I had a four day weekend, we're going to do everything that we got. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, like even out of my divorce, uh, living with multiple people that would allow me a place to stay until I got back on my feet again. I got, I connected with my current wife, Leah. We've been together since 2012 and I had met her previous, previously in my past when I used to bring her now ex-husband home. And like he and I would do like on the job sites, like we would just do ridiculous amounts of cocaine together. And she, she had come through her second divorce. I had just been divorced and we reconnected at a local pub. And at that point in time, I had a great job. I was doing traffic cameras. I was traveling, working, making fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year. But oh my goodness, that's when it got to a place where I was drinking two fists of whiskey a day and doing a grand worth of narcotics a week. Wow. Like the only time I would do cocaine is if I could do two, eight balls at a time. Mm. And I would do that just to show off. Sure. You know, it became this place of like, this is, let me provide this. You know, so here I am with my wife, Leah, and our three kids. So my three kids, they, before they knew me as somebody that loved Jesus, they knew me as somebody that was, you know, smoking a grand of crack in the basement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it took... So I'm, I'm six years sober now. So in 2012, no, 2016, the weekend of September 11th, I had, I was already living with my wife. We definitely weren't married. I had already been kind of delivered from alcohol. I had been sober off of alcohol for a year. I'd gotten to a place where I was drinking two fists of whiskey a day. And because of my own actions, I was faced with the fact like I could never drink again. And it's, you know, it's a long, dark story that's probably not worth repeating. And, uh, but I had went on this three-day weekend. It's called a walk to Emmaus. And I think they mm-hmm. got them they got them around the United States. Yeah. But my wife's mother had tried to get me to go the year prior, and I didn't. But to see God's sovereign hand on it was that I had finally gotten to this place where I was desperate for something different in my life. And I didn't know how to do it. And I had stolen narcotics that day. I go out to this men's retreat for 72 hours. And and I was just, I was high as a kite when I got there. And on that Thursday night of this weekend, we were all asked to go to bed in silence. Mm. So from years on the run, prison, jail multiple times, being a fugitive, being homeless, being an addict most of my life being a liar or thief all of my life. Here I was laying on this bunk bed in the middle of the woods high with the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. And over the course of these 72 hours, all the only way I can describe it to folks is I encountered love in a way that I had never experienced. Yeah. And for the first time in my entire life, I didn't feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. I was at a place where I could be real with these men and the Holy Spirit met me in this way that he put me flat on my face and I ugly snot cried with these men mm-hmm. in this in this chapel in the middle of the night. And I had these men surround me in such a way that I'm hearing all these men lay down these deep, dark secrets of their life. And then I was like, I'm laying them down. And every time I laid something down, I felt more free. And then all of a sudden I encountered the love of the Lord in such a way. Like I've heard like revivalists over the years talk about like 
God's liquid love. And like, that's what washed over me that night. And for the first time in 36 years, 37 years, I wasn't ashamed. Yeah. I wasn't hiding behind anything. I didn't have secrets. And it was the first time that I finally really trust God. Mm-hmm. And it's, I had to go ahead. It sounds like that night was pretty much the antithesis of what happened to you in high school, uh-huh. being surrounded by men and instead of being beaten or abused, you're lifting each other up as mm. you're laying stuff down. That sounds amazing. It transformed my life. Like there came this, and it was in that moment that I was completely healed of all my addictions. Mm-hmm. Like it just stopped. Like I was going through withdrawal every day if I didn't have pills. I was going mm-hmm. through withdrawal every day if I didn't have ganja or cocaine. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I got completely healed. I never, I never detoxed or went through withdrawal again. That's oh. awesome. And so after consuming deadly amounts of narcotics for 21 years, it all stopped that night. And, yeah. and I came out of this weekend and I kind of, I kind of joke around. Like, I feel like I felt like a mix between the Tasmanian devil and John the Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> ah, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. You know, and like, that was, I mean, not even a week after that, I feel like the Lord sent me on a course to just evangelize. Everywhere I went, I just had this freedom, and I felt empowered to be able to try to knock on every door and interject Jesus into every conversation of every person that I met. Sure. And go. then, you know, that became my new dopamine release. Mm-hmm. A healthy you know, one. <laughs> a healthy one a healthy one yeah. you know like mm-hmm. empowered by the holy spirit and uh you know at that point in time my wife was still dealing with alcoholism and, you know mm-hmm. so i got set free and it was still eight months to a year later before she truly got set free mm-hmm. yeah so like even that next eight months to a year was really hard sure mm-hmm. but leah and i had we had come to this place in our life where we knew that not being together wasn't the option. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as, as I'm being healed, as I was healed and things were just being transformed in my life, then he just began to give me the strength and compassion to just walk beside of her in the same aspect that these men had. And shortly after, shortly afterwards, like it was like one of those things where my whole house got gutted, like all these movies that didn't honor her, didn't honor the Lord. Like I knew that I couldn't sit on the couch anymore and watch things like Game of Thrones or True Blood and all these things that we used to sit around and watch because there was no way that I could watch something with nudity and still honor this woman beside of me that I love. Mm -hmm. And so that began to, you know, things like that begin to transform like and it's still six years later, it's still not easy with all three of my children because their, their birth father had, he was a very angry man and he had all these things like these dreams in life that he never fulfilled. So he always carried all these, these bitterness and, and these pains that he would kind of like project on the kids. And so they went through divorce and, so the kids knew their father through alcoholism, their mom through alcoholism, and me through addiction and alcoholism. So they've seen all those dark nights with me. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my wife's previous husband before me had her and the children in a cult. Oh, wow. Uh, like under the name of Christ. It was called the Restored Church of Christ of Philadelphia. They would lock the doors. They would chain the doors like women didn't have a voice like if you know if the women spoke up they would be called like whores of babylon wow and so the last time that my kids had seen somebody excited or their life transformed by the name of jesus it completely tormented them because it because it wasn't true Mm -hmm. right so to see me going from being an addict dj hippie culture you know there was always like 
bands staying the weekend at my house and DJs staying the weekend at my house to me being sober and set free and my whole people group completely changing. So my children seen me going from being pothead, alcoholic, pill addict, smoking crack on the weekends to being very pro Jesus. And even me being very pro Jesus, even in a positive way, scared the crap out of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, easily. I mean, that's so easy to understand that. (laughs) You know, that would trigger all of the worst parts of their childhood kind of wrapped into one. Man. Mm-hmm. And so right now I'm in a place in my life where, uh, you know, I've got to be able to pour out compassion for my children and their choices in life right now. And mm-hmm. I, even on the days that I don't ever get to talk about Jesus, I've got to be walking in. I've got to be walking in hand in hand with the Holy Spirit in such a way that I have to find these pockets to love them and just pray like, Lord, let this action of love be the seed that is representative of the love of Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and on the days that it doesn't work, then I've got to be quick to forgive. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so true. Like, what does it look like for me to sacrifice today? Well, it means uh, I'm about to keep my mouth shut and (laughs) just go for a walk. (laughs) That could be powerful. You know, just keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> you know, not not asking too many questions because you know there's times that we can, when there's things that go against our beliefs and our heart structure, maybe even just our deep desire to see something better for the people that we love. Mm-hmm. We can ask questions already knowing the answer, and already knowing that answer. You know, we almost force somebody that is not ready for change or somebody that is in trauma by us asking the questions that we already know the answer to. It forces them into this moment to be exposed, which triggers fight or flight, which will sometimes force them to leave your presence even quicker and turn to whatever their coping mechanism is even faster. Yeah. So, you know, I've got to be able to don't ask that question to my wife because I already know the answer. Don't ask that question to my daughter because I already know that answer and wait for the opportunity sometimes to just pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That gift of presence. True. It is. I mean, right now we've got a homeless ministry that is serving downtown every Saturday And it started off as a small group at church and really quickly the Holy Spirit said, if you just do this for eight to 10 weeks and then you stop, you're going to do more damage than good because Mm -hmm. you've spent the past eight to 10 weeks trying to create a relationship with somebody. And then what you just pack up and leave, you know, you know, it's like a short, sometimes a short term mission trip can do more damage than good. Yeah. So in the past three weeks we did a fundraiser and got the money to buy a van and access to a trailer really fast. Wow. And so we're going to be stocking the van and the trailer as a mobile clothing closet and pantry to where we can have hot food, hot coffee, fire pit, something dry for people to get every weekend. And then also have the means that if they've got soaking wet and nasty clothes that they're tempted to leave on the street or leave laying in the woods, let us bag them up and throw them away for you. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. You know, which will overall, they don't see it yet, but oftentimes folks that are homeless, especially in pockets of culture where there's not, there is homelessness, but it's not like Skid Row out in LA. Mm -hmm. So like in the region that I live at in Tennessee, they made it illegal to be homeless. So if you're caught, you know, you can't be out there sleeping in your car and you can't be sleeping on the bench. Like our local law enforcement can quickly come out and arrest you for sleeping on the street. Yeah. That's ridiculous. What makes people feel threatened by homelessness is, well, two factors. We have a huge, you know, meth epidemic in our region, like most of the United States. And the fact that homelessness causes mass amounts of garbage in the streets, it just freaks out people. So, like, when you've got your white, whether it's your white bread evangelicals, uh, local politicians, people of affluence, 
or sometimes it's just local business owners that you got new entrepreneurs coming in the area and maybe they've sunk all of their life investments into creating something nice. And there's something nice has the best shelter out front. Then every days of rain, you're going to get a couple of homeless folks that have set up shop and they've taken everything in their packs and everything in their shopping carts and stretch everything out. They want to try to dry things out so they don't lose everything that they got. You know, oftentimes folks on the street, even if you got something that's soaking wet and you're going to go find some place that you just want to leave it laying on the ground as opposed to throwing it away. I think something deep down in our spirit, we even begin to uh, like shame ourselves or guilt ourselves of this. And then the moment that we're doing something that we feel like isn't proper in culture. And then we kind of have like that all screw you mentality by it. The moment that we have that screw you mentality by it, then that becomes a trigger that will maybe that's when you're going to go find another bottle of liquor. That's maybe when you're going to go get like $4 worth of meth and be up for another week. Right. You know, it's little things like that become big triggers that keep us or keep people stuck in like these little toxic routines and cycles that prevents them from getting back on their feet for years and years and years. And, and, you know, we have so many people in our nation that, they feel so hopeless that they don't ever want to be off the street because they have mm-hmm. fault. They have fault to have what little bit that they do have on the street. You know, it's kind of like me growing up, you know, like I've got my own, I had my own backstories for years. So I would speak and say and do all these things to fit in and survive. And the once people get locked into living on the street, that's just the way of life. Yeah. I know one of the things that we noticed, especially in areas where homelessness is criminalized, is that once they have that on their record, you know, all it takes is three times and then suddenly they're in jail. And then, you know, it's felony and then it's, you know what I mean? So then by that point, you know, when they do get out, they have charges they got to pay off. They have uh, probation where they need to have a place <laughs> that they can be found. <laughs> and the problem was, is they didn't have a face place that they could be found before. Yep. So then it causes them to go into this cycle of being incarcerated over and over again. And as crazy as it sounds between the incarcerations and um, using the emergency room as a doctor, Yep. as the only doctor and overdosing and different things like that. They say the average homeless person costs taxpayers $200,000 a year. Oh yeah. That's crazy. I believe Versus it. Versus if we had them in a shelter somewhere, or if we put them in, even if we got them a nice apartment mm-hmm. and paid the rent and utilities, it wouldn't be $200,000 a year, but their likelihood of going to the ER would would drop significantly because they would have running water they would have clean showers they would have a place to keep food or to keep medicines without being jumped and having those things stolen and so like you know our heart's desire here through the acorn house you know right now we got one gentleman that lives with us that was incarcerated for seven years shot stabbed gang affiliated since he was 14 years old and he's thriving He's found community. He's been surrounded by covenant family at church, people that absolutely, he's not Lucas, you know, the ex-convict. He's the, he's the guy that can fix anything and has a heart for Jesus. And he's, he's sober. He knows Jesus. He just recently got married. He's getting off parole in January and him and his wife are about to have their own place. And he's got more work than he can handle. That's awesome. So if people wanted to connect with your ministry, the Acorn House, um, how would they do that? Where would they find you? The acornhouse.net. Okay. And do you guys have like a Facebook or? We do Facebook and Instagram. It's just called Acorn House. Okay. Perfect. So, but I mean, they can support you guys in prayer. They can support you through, you know, finances through the website. They sure can. Okay. All right. Very cool. Yeah. I think that's really important. Right now, now we're doing everything out of our house, but we have just met with 
our local an architect at our church and he's been drawing up plans because our church is going to help us renovate our garage kind of double it in size if the city where we want that favor with the city mm -hmm. uh but our vision is to have a commercial kitchen and a classroom and a living room to where we can work with people as a daytime center and it's going to be no more than six people at a time because we want everybody to realize that they have a seat at the table yeah. So once we are operational as a daytime facility, then we will be picking up six people daily and we will prepare and eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. Mm. And, and during that time, they will learn food prep. They'll get their affairs in order. They'll get their paperwork in order, driver's mm -hmm. license, medical records. It'll be a time that we get to walk them through, you know, processing their trauma process right. and any kind of grief that they've got in their life and really we just you know whether it be six months or a year but we want to get you back to a place where you've been able to just really transform your thinking into a, a place where you're capable of loving where you're capable of receiving love where you're capable of thriving and living on your own that's what we're dreaming for right now we know that things are going to evolve over the years but mm -hmm. we just want to be we want to be present in people's lives and just give them the place to just move past the cycles that keep them bound. Yeah. That's good. Yes. That's good. Um, well, good. we are so grateful that we were able to connect with you and that we were able to figure out <laughs> some of these sound issues. So we just want yes. to say thank you for being on here. Oh, it was thank my pleasure. You. Join us for the 10th annual Dressember Style Challenge. Advocacy is better together, and we would love to have you on Team Bring Freedom. Wear a dress or tie every day during the month of December to raise awareness and funds to end human trafficking. Check the description box for more information. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoy hearing stories of persons with lived experience, please rate and review wherever you're listening to this podcast.